Hi, I'm Katie Kramer, President and CEO of the Betcher Foundation. Welcome to Colorado Leadership Stories, where we talk to everyday, courageous leaders who have made transformational impacts in their communities and are building a better state for everyone. You'll hear from leaders and organizations and communities throughout the state as we explore the idea that leadership is an activity that anyone can do. Today, we're talking to Dr. Tony Frank, Chancellor of the CSU System, who has a storied career as a higher ed leader in Colorado. Prior to his current role, Dr. Frank, or Tony, as we know him, served as president of the CSU campus in Fort Collins for a decade. These followed roles as provost and vice president of research. Tony is also the current chair of the board for the trustees of the Betcher Foundation and is a tremendous mentor and friend. And so we're so grateful you're here today, Tony. Great to be here, Katie. Thanks for talking with me. You bet. Tony, tell us about your childhood. Growing up on a farm, I know, in rural Illinois, how did that influence your life path as a veterinarian and educator? I was always very interested in, in staying on the farm. And my parents, uh, my dad had never graduated high school, and my mother, teacher, and they felt very strongly that uh, the three of us, my two older brothers and I, should should go to college. So in thinking about what I might study, I thought about things that could take me back to the farm, and being a veterinarian seemed like uh, something that might work for that. But along the way, I uh, met this girl, and uh, she uh, wasn't interested in going back to the farm, and so I needed a plan B, which uh, took my own career and down the path of education and teaching at universities and things. And Interestingly enough, both my brothers started out their careers as teachers, and, and I started out mine as an educator as well. Wonderful. I have benefited from many anecdotes and stories about your dad over <laughs> the years, and I'm curious if you would share uh, what a favorite one or something you remember or something that he said that you would share. <laughs> Where to start? I mean, I've got several favorites of his. You wouldn't worry so much about what other people thought about you if you realized how seldom they did. That was a good one. Um, <laughs> saying it louder and more often doesn't make it more true. That was another another good one. But I, I don't know. I suppose the two that, that I use in my career today, you know, we lived on a type of farm that doesn't exist anymore, but we had, had some dairy cattle uh, at the time. And so you'd finish up for the day and, you know, picture summer night on an Illinois farm, fireflies, crickets, you know, it's it's humid and you're you're sitting outside cooling off and, and all of a sudden there'd be a pause and my, my dad would say, you hear that? And my brothers and I would just groan because we knew it was coming next and he'd go, that's the sound of hay growing and the cow's making milk. We'll see you in the morning. <laughs> and I, I tell that story because, I mean, growing up on a farm like that, being on a dairy farm, your work was never over right? You might get a break here and there, but it instilled this concept that you didn't necessarily finish things. You were always working. And when you combine that with, um, I think my brothers and I each had this experience precisely once. Um, you'd come home from an event, an athletic event or a musical performance, and you'd be really proud of how it had gone. And, and our, our dad would say to us, well, are you satisfied? And each of us answered it wrong once by saying yes. And the follow-up question, you know, is obvious in retrospect. Are you, are you satisfied because you absolutely couldn't do any better or because you're willing to settle for how well you did? And, and that, you know, obviously the joking aside around it, that idea that you can always do better and your work's never done, I think has 
uh, application to virtually uh, all walks of life and to everything that, that you and I do in our organizations, Katie. Wow. Tony, you started at um, Wartburg College, right? And that was a small liberal arts college in Iowa and maybe a bit of a different learning environment maybe than Colorado State University. Yes. I, I'm just curious about your reflections on on that as part of your your formative years. Yeah. I uh, I wanted to go to University of Illinois. I wanted to go to a very big university, and uh, I wound up getting a, a wonderful scholarship offer from Wartburg. Um, and, I, and so I wound up going there. My parents largely made that decision for me, and I got an absolutely wonderful uh, liberal arts education that I fought every step of the way, um, telling people consistently that I was going to be a large animal vet and Holsteins and Durocks didn't care about these things like history and public speaking and sociology and psychology and all of the things that, that Wartburg made us take. And yet it's all of those things and, and the things you take away from a strong liberal arts education that are have been the backbone of my career and are the things I use every day. And if I were to rely on my veterinary medical textbooks, which still are on the shelves of my office. I, I call that the wall of malpractice because <laughs> even if I remembered what was in them, the, the profession has moved on. As an 18 to 21-year-old man, I had no appreciation of that wonderful educational environment. Since then, obviously, I've spent my time at big research universities like Colorado State, and I'm a huge fan of, of what we offer um, societally and how we break down the feel of a big university into smaller community components. Um, but I think the thing that I take away from all of those experiences is the rich diversity of American higher education. There, There's a place for everyone out there. And that my advice to anyone uh, with the talent and the motivation to earn a college degree is find the fit that's right for you. Mm, absolutely. I'm curious um, if at Wartburg, if that's where you first learned about all about Abraham Lincoln. And that's a bit of a selfish question, because if uh, anybody's heard Tony Frank speak, there's got there's always a quote or some lesson from Abraham Lincoln. So I have to have that story about where did that come from, as I think he's one of your mentors, someone who's inspired you. Um, so so how, how did that come into your life? Well, uh, Wartburg is in Iowa. And I don't remember if we actually talked about Lincoln very much there. Um, we may have. I don't recall it. Uh, growing up in Illinois, you're constantly taught about Lincoln at virtually every age. We have had so few elected officials who didn't end up in prison in Illinois that, you know, <laughs> someone like Lincoln really stands out from the crowd. Um, no, what I always um, was just struck by in all the, the stories about Lincoln um, were the positive forward-looking uh, things that he would accomplish, the vision that he had often juxtaposed immediately in the wake of uh, some horrible tragedy or setback in the Civil War, the Emancipation Proclamation coming days after um, Antietam and, the, and what's still one of the bloodiest battles um, in, in the history of America, um, signing the Land Grant Act. Um, immediately after the loss of, of the Seven Days Battle. Uh, there was always, I think, a, a tendency on his part to look for what would happen after this horrible war was over. And I think there's a lesson in leadership there for all of us. I want to take us back to um, higher education. You just started talking about that and how important it is. And we, we know that at the Betcher Foundation that these incredible students that we help fund and support to 
achieve their potential, um, that that fit is really important. And uh, we're blessed to have a lot of opportunities here in the state and beyond. But I'm, I'm also curious from your perspective about higher ed, the business of higher ed. What are some of the biggest challenges that you see at present? Well, I think the main one is that there is, I think, a very dangerous narrative at work in America today. And it's a narrative that essentially says... Um, college education isn't worth what it used to be. College is far too expensive. It runs up uh, vast amounts of debt. And you, potential college student, ought to seriously think about whether or not a college education is worth it. Each piece of that, we could spend an entire conversation about, Katie. There's, uh, I think the data are very clear that the return on investment, higher education, has never been higher, whether that's in terms of employment rates, lifetime earnings, the wage gap between having a college degree and not having a college degree. Um, when you talk about things like life satisfaction, life expectancy, probability of voting, they're all tied uh, with education. And I think educated people are a critical set of threads in the fabric of our society. They tend to play important leadership roles within their community. And I think there's a set of perspectives that they have experienced of learning different points of view and learning how problems that seem intractable at the moment had solutions at some point down the road that, that serve them and, and hence us very well. In an economic sense, for example, what the state of Colorado invests in, in a Colorado resident going to college, the taxes on that person's higher college-related income repay that investment generally in the four-year time frame. Um, and after that... Mm. It generates revenue back for the state. So you can look at it through an economic lens, an individual lens, uh, a societal lens. There are tremendous benefits to going to college. And I th the, the student debt question, um, there's a lot of misinformation out there around that. If you say to people, did you know that about, about half the people that go to a Colorado State University or a similar university graduate debt-free? And the ones that graduate with that graduate with around 25000 and inflation adjusted and compared to starting salaries. That hasn't changed just a whole lot in like a 30 or 40 year period. People are, are struck by that. Um, and in fact, our polling shows it shows that people um, challenge it. Uh, we did some polling with our colleagues at the University of Colorado. People think that a college education costs nearly double what it does and that debt levels are over four times what they actually are. And I think those two things combine in a very dangerous way to send signals um, to people that might push them away from being prepared to go to college and looking to go to college. I, I don't for a moment believe that everyone has to have a college education, right? I mean, there are wonderful careers out there that, that don't require it. And there's a lot of work we can do around um, improvements in how education writ broad, not just a higher ed baccalaureate degree, reach out to society. And we need, we really do need to do those things. But those should all be individual choices, I believe. And anyone with the talent and the motivation to make the most uh, of, of their uh, gifts and talents deserves to have that opportunity. That's always been a premise in America and in American education. And I, I'll only give that premise up extremely reluctantly. And I think the narrative that's out there now 
um, places that are at risk. And I think it's up to all of us to speak out against it. Tony, what do you see happening in, let's say, the next 10 years? How, what do you see trend-wise about how higher ed is evolving? I do think we, we need to do a better job. And whether it's us in higher ed or someone will do it because we failed to do it, I think the jury's still out on Katie. But I think we need to do a much better job of reaching out to, to people for whom a four-year period in a face-to-face higher education setting is not going to work for them for whatever reason. They have parents they're taking care of. They have children that they might be taking care of. Maybe they're a working adult. Uh, maybe the opportunity to, to come through a school district and be prepared for admission to a college like that wasn't there for them. Any number of factors. Maybe they want to start a business. Maybe they want to be an entrepreneur. But we need to provide educational products to all of those people that allow them to be successful in their businesses and in their lives and to be very valued, effective members of our society. To the extent that education becomes a dividing line within our society, it's not as if we don't have enough dividing lines in our society already, but to the extent that education becomes another one, or worse yet, becomes a reinforcing divide between various classes, then we as educators will really have failed. So I think higher ed will will evolve to cross those lines, um, to not allow that divide to get worse. And I'm positive that we'll do that. I think so, too. When I think about your life in uh, being the chancellor of the CSU system, I think that the job of college president chancellor is one of the hardest jobs that I certainly see that I have colleagues and friends that have these positions where you just, it's go, go, go. And we just have heard you talk about the challenges, the way that you are advocating for um, the education of so many. And I wonder how you are able, from a leadership perspective, how do you how do you manage that responsibility? What motivates you to get up in the morning and be this wonderful leader, knowing that you have these hopes and dreams pinned on you as the leader of big a big system? Well, there's a lot in there, and some of it i'm I don't know that I'm so willing to put on my shoulders, but I will say that, some of the best advice I got early on in my career was to find a place that you drew inspiration from on your campus. And for me at CSU, that was always the plaza, right? And just outside the Lori Student Center, Clark Hall, uh, Morgan Library is right there. And and at the break between classes, particularly around midday, there are just thousands of young people who come streaming out of those buildings and are crossing that plaza and just standing there and watching all of that and thinking about all that passion and all that human talent, all that energy that, that is in that space. Um, and that, that we're entrusted um, with allowing those people to hone those skills, um, to sharpen them, to determine what they want to do with their lives and to go out and make a difference. And, and the combined uh, ripples of those lives, if you will, the combined effects of those educations, that always inspired me because I, I think you can make a very credible case that there's never been a major challenge that has been solved without human creativity and ingenuity. And I don't know that, that one ever will. And so celebrating that, that creativity and ingenuity, helping develop it and helping turn it out so that at graduation, Every graduation ceremony is, as I believe, our generation's time to turn to the next one and say, come on in. It's your turn now. We need your help. We've done some things we're really proud of, and we've left a lot of heavy lifting. 
and we need everything you have to offer, and, and you're ready now. It's a wonderful moment. Absolutely. Um, you know, being our board chair, that at Betcher, our mission is to connect and build up Colorado's doers and difference makers. I'm curious about the point in your life when you realized that you were one of those doers and difference makers. I don't think I've got to it yet. <laughs> Certainly not in the sense I believe you meant the question. But I will say that as I watch the people that we, all of us at the Betcher Foundation, identify as doers and difference makers, you can see it in them very easily, right? And I, I think in that maybe is an observation that I think people who are really good at um, uh, look at our doers and difference makers, right? I think if you ask that question to most of them, they would say, I, I don't know that I see myself in that role, really. They're just people who saw something that they perceived needed to be done, and they did it. And I think I think that's probably a commonality. It's much, much less about them and much more about the people in the community around them and that there was work to be done. So they rolled up their sleeves and did it. I think so. I, th I think that's exactly what we see in our better scholars yeah. that apply, that they've got a heart for service and they see a need and take some action and have a lot of support too from uh, Absolutely. teachers and parents and others in the community. Tony, uh, more on leadership, but what is one idea that many people get wrong about leadership? I don't know how universal this is, Katie, but a lot of people I, I perceive get wrapped up in leadership questions about the moment, and they forget that as leaders, especially of public organizations and longstanding public organizations, we inherit something we didn't build, right? Generations of Coloradans before us built the, our universities and the infrastructure of our state and the backbones of these organizations. Um, people have led them through challenging times like world wars and great depressions and, and all sorts of different situations. We're here for a, for a blink of an eye in a, in a time sense. And I think it's always helpful for leaders to remember that they didn't create this this thing and that this thing will go on after them. And so whatever the crisis of the moment is that they're wrapped up in, something comparable or greater has been dealt with before, and there's more that's coming down the road. And, and that perspective of saying, not getting too wrapped up in this moment, saying, what do I, what do, I do about this thing? And instead thinking about what's going to be the best answer for this organization 50 years from now, long after we're gone. I think that gives a calmer, longer-term perspective that leads to better decision-making. Tony, we talked about your parents earlier, your dad especially. We talked about Abraham Lincoln as well. In addition to them, who were your biggest or continue to be your biggest leadership influences? Boy, there's a, a lot of those folks. I mean, Russ George, um, former former chair of the of the Betcher board and former speaker of the Colorado House comes to mind. Um Holly Baca, who's on my board now, certainly comes to mind for a lot of her trailblazing activities. The late Joe Blake. And I guess if I think about what those those people like that have in common, you might not agree with them on every individual topic, but their personality sort of transcends the issue in question. You knew that they they cared about the topic and about the organization and about the community, whether that was 
local or state or national or, or even international. And you knew they cared about you. And, and that combination of events made and makes them all a real pleasure to work with, um, a treasure of information to learn from, um, and people with whom you could find common ground even on topics where you didn't agree. Uh, because they, they just took your mind and your attitude toward a place of not so much what you believed and what you, what you were interested in, quote, arguing, unquote, and into how can we make things better? Um, how can we make things better for everyone around us? And that, to me, those are just inspiring individuals. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice about leadership that you would share with others? <laughs> well... Don't take yourself too seriously. There's a lot about leadership that encourages it, encourages one, in my opinion, to take themselves too seriously. But I guess maybe one thing that I, I would suggest is uh, I think it's a common mistake, and you can see why it's made, for communication to be effective on the front end of an issue, but weak on the back end. And I think the most important communication is probably on the back end of a decision. Yeah, you, you want to sit and talk with people and gather input and, and listen to all points of view as you're getting ready to make a decision. And then when you make the decision that you believe is, is the best for the organization in the long run, I think there's a tendency to want to just put that issue, especially if, if it was a contentious issue, behind you and move on to something more unifying. Um, and there's also the crush of the moment, you know, the tyranny of whatever the crisis of the day is and all those sorts of things. So I understand why it happens, but effective leaders take the time after the decision to communicate to people why they made the decision they made. And in that moment, you have a chance to honor differing points of view, to validate them, um, to take people who are going to be critical of your decision and state overtly that you heard their point of view and that people who care about this organization, every bit as much as you do, could look at the same issue and might well arrive at a different conclusion. But having said those things, you've thought it over, you've arrived at your decision, here's why you made it, and now you hope that the organization can move on and be effective. And in my experience, that sort of honoring the criticisms um, and acknowledging them sets the stage for healing if it's been a really contentious decision, but also for people to come together around implementation of your decision, even if they didn't necessarily agree with it, because the attitude switches from our voices weren't heard to, well, I think Tony might have got that one wrong, but he heard us um, and he made the decision he thought was best. And now let's let's try and make it work as, as well as we can. Uh, and those are two very different spots for an organization to be in after a tough decision. That's really good advice and makes me think of another follow-up about you're in spaces and situations when things go well and things don't go well. <laughs> <laughs> and other than the piece about communication, is there a common denominator about when you think about some of those most difficult challenges that you have been present to that... Um, that there's some themes when it goes well or doesn't go well. I I think it's a dividing point, right? And I, I sound a bit like a broken record, I know, Katie, but I think 
you know, it's it's pretty rare in my experience that a really difficult situation is caused by the leader or the executive leadership team. More often, you find yourself in those situations because of something that's happened external to your organization or someone within the organization has made a very bad choice and, and now that's created a, a, a situation. And I think there is, almost regardless of the etiology, there's a moment when that problem presents itself to you and your leadership team where you have a, and this is too black and white, I'm sure, but it, it does seem some in some cases to be almost a binary choice of saying, look, this was a mistake our organization made, for example, we acknowledge it, we're going to fix it, we own it, that takes you down one path. But if in that moment you're more worried about, and I would argue it's not the reputation of the organization, you might say that, but what that's really a proxy for is you're worried about your own reputation and the effect it could have on your own leadership team, and you try and spare the organization, in quotes, those people, those moments, then you own part of that problem. And you've missed an opportunity to model, I think, one of the most important things of leadership, which is to acknowledge that mistakes get made by human beings. And when we make them, we own them and we fix them. Um, and having that attitude in a leadership situation, I've never found it to do anything other than make really tough decisions seem much simpler. Mm. And as I've watched organizations, and we can all think of some very famous ones, right, that have gotten it wrong it almost always doubles down on making the problem much worse when it finally does come to light. So I think there's a commonality there about owning the moment, doing what's best for your organization, uh, and modeling behavior that, that I think we'd all do well to, to have the, the words, I was wrong, a little closer to the tips of our tongue than, than it sometimes is. Agreed. <laughs> Tony, tell us about a leadership challenge where you learned something that made you into an even better leader. Mm. Well, the, the first thing that comes to mind, I was probably in still in the first month of my presidency. It would have been December of, of 2008. And so we were right at the start of the Great Recession. The state had issued a, a mid-year budget rescission. I don't remember the numbers exactly. That may be sign of of that all those years of therapy have helped with that. Um, but it was it was tens of millions of dollars that uh, Colorado State was going to have to to give back the state of Colorado. So we had to cut that in a mid-year budget. And of course, when you're halfway through the year, you have to cut you know roughly double that amount. And so um, we were looking at laying off a, a very large number of people. Didn't end up happening. The American Reinvestment and Recovery Act funds came into the state, and then Governor Ritter um, handled them, I thought, brilliantly. Um, and I, I still don't think a lot of people realize how much that saved a lot of Colorado's public institutions, um, particularly higher education. But in that moment, there was one morning, I think it was like 10, maybe 11 o'clock. We were in the small conference room in the president's office, you know, jackets off, ties loose and sleeves rolled up, whiteboards everywhere, you know, it was, it was a, a hot room and we, we had stuff all over whiteboards trying to find this money to make these decisions. And it was an uncomfortable, stressful moment. And there was a knock on the door um, and my executive assistant came in and said uh, that the children uh, from the Early Childhood Development Center uh, were there to sing holiday songs to the president. And 
I, I looked around, looked at the juxtaposition of things and said, I, I just don't have time for this. I mean, I, we've got to get this resolved here. And so she ducked back out and, and about a minute or two later, there's a knock on the door and it was her again. She said, can I see you for a second? And I went out in the hallway and her comment to me was, you don't get to do that. Um, this problem, and I would, I would say you can extrapolate it. Whatever problem is there in front of you as a leader, it will be there an hour from now. It will be there two hours from now. But the point she made was these kids and their parents and their grandparents have been preparing for this moment to come and sing these songs to you, the president, and they won't be here an hour from now. I still have in my office a picture of me with those kids on the steps of the admin building because they and Katie, my executive assistant, taught me an incredibly important lesson that day, which was when you have the privilege of being in one of these positions, everybody deserves your best. The next appointment may not be one that is the highest on your priority list for the day, but that person may have spent a lot of time getting ready for this meeting, and they deserve you to be there mentally, um, and they deserve the best you've got. And that, I can't tell you the number of things I would have screwed up if I hadn't learned that lesson early on, and I'll always be grateful for having learned it. That's powerful. And at a go, Katie, yeah. <laughs> for having the courage to say that, too. Yep. That was great. Thanks for sharing that moving story. Um, okay, Tony, you're almost off the hook here. All right. We have a lightning round of questions drum for roll. you. Are you ready? No drum roll. Okay. okay. No drum roll. Okay, here goes. Number one, what is your favorite Colorado hobby? Uh, fishing. I knew you were going to say yeah. that. That's right. <laughs> what do you like to catch the most since we were both fisher fisher people? You know, I, I grew up around boat fishing. So as, as wonderful as fly fishing is, um, you know, I don't particular i i love casting banks for um for rainbows and browns in the spring and fall that's so fun love it okay favorite colorado landmark hmm uh i don't know that it's a landmark i mean maroon bells is very tempting of course but uh, that stretch of of highway as you come down off independence pass and you're headed toward twin lakes Mm. uh, in the fall when the aspens are golden that's about as pretty a place as as I know of in the state. Absolutely. Okay, number three, what action hero do you most identify with other than Abraham Lincoln? (laughs) I did not see an Abraham Lincoln Vampire Slayer reference. (laughs) Ernie Banks. And if you don't think he's an action hero, check the definition. (laughs) Very good. Okay, um, Tony, last question. What are you currently binging? Is there a show, book, podcast, something that you're... (laughs) currently into i you know i don't do a lot of that um i binge read newspapers in the morning which is a very boring thing to say um and then i tend to read different things in the evening but uh, i'm not a big show or podcast binger you are an absolute gift you're a gift to the betcher foundation you're a gift to the colorado state university system and frankly to me i am so 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 grateful to have you as a mentor as our leader of our of our board right now, Tony, and um, and for your leadership here in the state of Colorado. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for joining Colorado Leadership Stories, where we hope to inspire the next generation of Colorado community builders, doers, and difference makers. 
Colorado Leadership Stories is presented by the Betcher Foundation. The Betcher Foundation supports Colorado by empowering leaders and communities with tools to tackle challenges and pursue opportunities, building a better state for everyone. With an 85 plus year legacy of giving back, we're committed to amplifying our impact for future generations. That's the spirit of Betcher.